This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, corruption and mind alteration, discussion of harmful sexual stereotypes, and abusive cultural values, including manipulation by authority figures. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 283. Hey there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and tell you the latest on my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 24 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Evan took Daniel to see Artax, the wizard responsible for creating his trial-sized version of the Androgyne Curse. Daniel has been having some strange side effects since becoming an Androgyne. While in his feminine alter ego, Danny, he went on a date with another low-powered telepath named Jared Tamlin. After a single kiss, Danny was overcome with lust for Jared, to the point where he had to buckle her into her seat in the skimmer because she was so obviously impaired. Danny also immediately began thinking of herself as a she, rather than as a man wearing a female body. This sort of sudden perspective shift is not normal for first-gen androgynes, and while androgynes do have elevated libidos, they don't exhibit that sort of complete loss of control either. Artax performed a series of tests on Daniel, including having him change back into Danny. He found no evidence of magical tampering with Danny's mind or biological impulses. He also found no sign that telepathy had been used to rewrite her personality. With no evident changes in either her hindbrain or her cerebral cortex, that left one other possible explanation. A change at the level of the soul, the spark of individuality that makes each person unique. In the world of Metamore, the soul is known to exist as a distinct, non-physical element of a person's nature, but it is still poorly understood. Most of the lore that was ever discovered about it was lost when the gods wiped out the necromancers 10,000 years ago. As a result, Artax can only offer guesses about what might have caused Danny's soul to change. She has been putting enormous pressure on herself to fit into the collective. Maybe she has a soul-deep need for belonging that's so intense it drove her breeding instincts into overdrive when she met a man she could have sex with. Granted, it was only a guess, but Danny was still horrified. To her, it sounded like she had somehow turned herself into a slut. But grimly, Artax told her that this was actually the less terrifying option, because if she didn't do it to herself, 
then that means someone else did it to her. That means there's someone out there with the power to shape people's souls, to change the deepest desires of their hearts without leaving a trace of magical or telepathic evidence. I don't know about you, Artax said, but I'd rather deal with being a slut than have a world with a monster like that living in it. Making the Cut A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 24 Artax's words haunted Danny all through the bus ride home. She tried to change back to Daniel before leaving the magic shop, but her thoughts were scattered, and she couldn't really summon up a compelling reason to change back. All of her thoughts of Rebecca were clouded over by the memories of her date with Jared. She'd always believed that a future with Rebecca was what she wanted more than anything, but her recent experiences seemed to make a mockery of that idea. Was she really so desperate for belonging that she was ready to give everything to the first male teep that she made a connection with? Would she do the same thing again for the next man who came along? And just as importantly, had Daniel always had these tendencies and just never realized it? She thought back to Daniel's teenage years and tried to remember what his sexual encounters had been like. Though he had known Rebecca the longest, and she was the only girl Daniel would have said he loved, he had been with other girls, and Rebecca had been with other people as well. Sexual experimentation was expected among teenagers in the creche, and the resulting bonds often played a major part in the formation of breeding cells. The fact that Daniel was tall, athletic, and good-looking had also made him popular with the girls, back before his low power rating had become such a stigma. Still, Danny couldn't remember any of those girls having the same kind of effect on Daniel that Rebecca had. She couldn't be sure, but it definitely seemed like her reaction to Jared was a sign of a major change in her psyche. That conclusion left several possible implications, none of them good. A small and desperate part of her brain still held on to the idea that someone had changed her, that some unseen monster had reached inside her soul and made her want things that she wasn't supposed to want. The idea was horrifying, but at least it meant there was a chance that someone could reverse whatever had been done to her. Of course, that would entail finding whoever it was who hypothetically had this power to alter her soul. She briefly considered the possibility that Jared had done it, but she soon discarded the idea as ludicrous. She'd never even heard of such a power before, and surely the Collective would have discovered it if he did have it. Besides, Jared had behaved honorably with her. He'd gone to great efforts to stop her from having sex with him in her altered state, despite his obvious desire to do so. Somehow, she didn't think that a person would brainwash someone and then refuse to take advantage of the benefits. She sighed and slumped her head against the window of the skimmer bus. No, like it or not, she couldn't blame her actions on a monster that probably didn't even exist. This was apparently something she'd done to herself. The loneliness, the shock and isolation because of Del and Trace's deaths, the need to really belong to the Hive. 
All of those factors must have combined with the effects of the androgyne spell, and something inside her had shifted radically as a result. She wasn't sure if it qualified as going insane or just as an unpleasant epiphany, but somehow she'd gone from a single-minded devotion to Rebecca to being the woman who couldn't say no. At least where other telepaths are involved. Apparently her subconscious survival instincts were still intact, since she hadn't had any response to the kiss with Evan. She was grateful for that much, at least. If Danny Shirabi was fated to be a slut, at least she wouldn't end up dragging some poor Mundy down into an unbreakable gestalt. A slut. Even in her head, the word sounded dirty and shameful, and she winced at the thought of it. She didn't want to think of herself that way, but the evidence for it seemed pretty strong. Then again, she thought, what does the word mean, anyway? Was it just a woman who liked to have a lot of sex? Else, that was every androgyne, and a whole lot of other people, too. Was it a woman who had sex with a lot of different partners? The sensualists did that, and got paid well for it, but theirs was a respected profession. Was it a woman whose sexual appetites were somehow deviant or outside the norm? Well, by most people's way of thinking, the Psy Collective already fell into that category. Not too many Mundies would understand the rationale behind the breeding cells, or the reason why they worked. Was it a woman who wouldn't refuse sex from anyone? If so, that didn't apply to Danny. She'd already demonstrated that she could control herself around Mundies like Evan. Well, admittedly, there had been the incident with Ava on the dance floor, but she'd been new to the curse's effects at that point, and wasn't prepared for her heightened sex drive. She was confident that if she found herself in the same position now, she'd do a better job of restraining herself. Now that she thought about it, Danny couldn't see any rational reason for why the whole stigma of the slut even existed. As long as she was careful to use protection and stayed away from the mundanes, why should it matter who she wanted to sleep with? If she liked Jared and wanted to have sex with him, why should she feel ashamed of that? Why should she keep punishing herself by holding on to the notion of some idealized fairy tale romance that would never happen? Why shouldn't she enjoy herself in the here and now? The skimmer bus dropped her off at the usual corner, and Danny strode back to her apartment with a sense of purpose. Once she got inside, she went immediately to the telephone. A flashing light on the handset showed her that there was a message waiting. She pushed the playback button. Hey, Dee, it's me, Rebecca's voice said. I know you said we'd talk later, but it's been a few days since... Well, since everything happened. I wanted to check and make sure you're doing okay. She paused, and Danny could sense her hesitancy. Look, just give me a call when you get the chance, okay? I miss you, and there's some... There's some stuff going on. I could be kind of busy here pretty soon, and I want to see you again before... Well, before. So, yeah, call me, okay? Love ya. The machine beeped. You have no more messages. Danny looked at the phone for a long moment, considering. She turned on the handset, started dialing Rebecca's number, then stopped and turned it off again. There was no going back to the way things used to be, and she was sick of hurting all the time. Let it be, 
she whispered to herself. Just let it be. Reaching down, she pushed the button to erase the old messages. Then she dialed a different number. The phone picked up on the second ring. Danny? I want to see you, Jared, Danny said. Her voice was clear and certain. As soon as you can get here. Wednesday, June 5th. Any news? Miriam could practically hear the young man fidgeting on the other end of the phone line. I am afraid not, ma'am. I put out observers all over the city, everywhere we could manage it. There's no sign of them. He hesitated. Permission to speak freely, ma'am? Granted. This would be a lot easier if we could use our powers, ma'am. Give me a few good espers and permission to use them, and we could find the girl in three days, tops. No, Peter. Abby Preston is ESP-sensitive. Not heavily so, but enough to know if she's being tracked. If she tells Victor about it, he'll take her even further off the grid. I don't want to risk her being unable to come home again when she decides that she needs to do so. Understood, ma'am. We'll do everything we can to find her. I've no doubt. Miriam looked up at the number on the apartment door in front of her. She nodded to herself. She was in the right place. Tell your agents to check in verbally every twelve hours. If they make a positive identification, have them call me immediately. Don't send anything through the mind links, Peter. This operation does not exist, understand? Yes, ma'am. Peter sounded deeply unhappy, but she knew he would do as she asked. Good man. I'll speak to you in three days if there is no other news. Bakhtavar out. She tapped a button on her wireless headset and ended the call. The door was already in the process of opening when she reached up to knock. The young pregnant woman who held it open for her lowered her eyes and smiled shyly as Miriam looked at her. Hello, Rebecca, Miriam said, her voice gentle. Were you listening just now? Rebecca looked mortified. What? Oh, no, 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 mistress. I would never eavesdrop on you, ma'am. She blushed furiously. I just channeled that you were at the door, is all. Miriam put a hand on the younger woman's shoulder. It's all right. Are the others here? Rebecca nodded. Everybody's inside, ma'am. She stepped aside and held the door for Miriam as she entered the apartment. Brian and the other wives got up from the couches in the living room and bowed to her in greeting. The last person in the room, a teenaged girl with unkempt hair, remained perched on the back of one of the overstuffed chairs, her feet resting on the seat cushion. She eyed Miriam with a mixture of wariness and curiosity. Brian, Fiona, Sasha, Miriam said, nodding to each of them in turn. Elder Bakhtavar, Brian said. Thank you for coming. Of course. She turned to the mundane girl and gave her a full bow from the waist. And you must be Callie. Brian tells me that your assistance has been invaluable. On behalf of all my people, I thank you. The corner of Callie's lip twitched, but it didn't quite turn into a smile. At last, she nodded to Miriam, not taking her eyes off of her. Miriam supposed that it was as close to showing proper manners as she was going to get from the girl. Well, hey, Callie said, shrugging with obvious discomfort. Thank me when we get through this, right? 
We aren't even within five clicks of the hard part yet. So I have gathered. Miriam sat down in one of the chairs and faced the others, clasping her hands in front of her. Rebecca followed her into the living room and took a seat between Brian and Sasha, her dark eyes wide and troubled. Miriam looked at each of them in turn. I won't waste time with speeches, she said. You know as well as I that the Hive has made more than its share of missteps in recent months. I bear some of the blame for those mistakes myself. Now, if the Great Maker wills it, I shall help to set right the things that can still be mended. Tell me what you have learned about this vault. Briefly, they described the storage facility at Viscount Security Systems and the three layers of defenses around it. Miriam noticed that Callie's eyes kept shifting between herself and the door. With her psi-enhanced senses, Miriam could smell the girl's nervous agitation, and she heard her heartbeat quicken every time that Miriam looked at her. Interesting. It's not the defenses on the vault itself that worry me, Brian said. The problem is how we're going to get to the vault in the first place. Viscount closes for business at 6 p.m., and the whole office goes into lockdown mode. We're talking about lead-lined blast doors, cold-wrought iron tracing inside the walls, defensive wards bounded in mithril. The whole place is a black box, Callie said. No form of magical surveillance can penetrate it. I'm guessing that holds for psi powers, too. Miriam felt a sudden wave of anxiety coming from Rebecca. Does that mean your powers won't work when you're inside? The younger woman asked. No, they should work fine, Brian said. But the walls of the office will act like a black hole. We won't be able to communicate telepathically with anyone on the outside, and you won't be able to see what we're doing in there. Can you bypass the defenses electronically? Miriam asked. Brian shook his head. No, that's what I meant when I said it goes into lockdown. From 6 p.m. until 7 a.m. the next business day, no one can get into the complex unless someone opens the doors from the inside. Malcolm Ardvalos himself couldn't get in. Miriam looked into his eyes for a long moment before sitting back in the chair. You have a plan. We do, Brian said, exchanging a glance with Fiona. But not one we can pull off without help. Go on. Well, like we said, getting in after closing is a no-go. We could try to infiltrate Viscount directly, put one of our people on the inside, but that would take months, and we'd run the risk of them being caught and interrogated. Or worse, Fiona said darkly. Or worse, Brian agreed. If the Hive's suspicions about the package are accurate, we don't have that kind of time. Our best bet is to get someone inside during normal business hours as a prospective customer, then make sure that Viscount loses track of them. Which is no cakewalk either, Callie said. Every visitor gets an electronic ID badge from the receptionist, and their names and contact info are all logged in a database. Every time one of those badges walks through a doorway, the system makes a note of it, so they can track your movements anywhere in the office. At the end of the day, a security op checks that log and makes sure everyone's out before they lock it down. Miriam turned to Brian. I assume that you are volunteering yourself to act as the hidden agent? Brian shrugged. There's no one better suited to it. I can trick the system into opening one of the doors without setting off any alarms. Can you also edit the security records to make it appear that you've left? I can, Brian said. 
but we also have to deal with the human element. If I'm there by myself or with a small group, the employees are going to remember me. It won't matter if the computer says I'm gone if they see four people walk into the office and three people walk out. We're going to need a big group of accomplices on this, at least a dozen, so that casual observers won't be able to keep track of all of our faces. We bring in a big tour group, I slip away to hide, and the others cover for me if anyone notices I'm gone. Then the tour group leaves, the facility gets locked down for the night, and I let in the safe-cracking team. I understand, Miriam said. What about security cameras? I should think that someone will notice if the blast doors open, and causing a glitch in the camera feed would be nearly as suspicious. There's another way inside, Kelly said. Even Viscount has to follow Imperial safety regs. There are emergency exits in different parts of the office to make sure they can evacuate everybody if they need to. They're still being watched, but not as closely. The off-site security ops probably won't notice if Brian loops the feed. Miriam took a deep breath, let it out again, and finally nodded. All right. Fiona, Sasha, what's your assessment of the plan? The two women exchanged a look, and Fiona spoke for both of them. The odds are favorable, provided that we have access to the necessary personnel and equipment, and provided that we have a fast, secure way of getting them out of there afterwards, Sasha added. Brian picked up a data card and a computer printout that had been sitting on an end table. This is a summary of what we need, Brian said, as he handed the sheet to Miriam. The specs and mission details are on the data card. Miriam glanced at the summary sheet. She winced at some of the equipment listed there. Much of it was military-grade hardware. I can manage this, she told them, but it's going to take time. A couple of weeks, at least. Sasha frowned. For the last mission, the Elder got us disguise charms, fake IDs, and a non-detection scroll in less than 24 hours. I can't use my capacity as an elder for this, Miriam said. If I do, the other elders will take notice. The hive may forbid me from helping you. Rebecca bristled, looking both angry and hurt. Callie shook her head and snorted. Sasha bit her lip and looked away, while Fiona stared at Miriam, her cool green eyes betraying nothing. Brian spoke for them all. I think we'd like to hear an explanation for that, Elder Bakhtivar. Miriam sighed and gave them all an apologetic look. Recent events have divided opinions within the Hive. The group mind is conflicted on how to proceed. Some believe that we should launch an immediate offensive against the Vampire Syndicate before they can use whatever biological weapons their foreign partners have developed for them. Others believe we should inform the government. A third faction believes that we should work quietly to find out what the Syndicate has developed and avoid doing anything rash. I don't get it, Callie said. I thought the whole point of this group mind thing was to make unanimous decisions easier. It is, Miriam said, and it does. But unanimous decisions require a solid understanding of the facts and their implications. In the absence of solid data, all we have to fall back on are our opinions. Callie smirked. And opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, and most of them are full of shit. Miriam grimaced at the girl's coarse language, but she nodded. Essentially, yes. 
Often a strong personality can sway others to agree with his or her opinion. But in this case, the situation is controversial enough that we have several prevailing views vying for acceptance. And in the meantime, nothing gets done, Brian said, sounding disgusted. So what does this have to do with freezing us out? I'm afraid that none of the major factions trust you at the moment, Miriam said. You, Fiona, and Sasha all served under Victor Hinkavos during your time with the Military Intelligence Directorate. You were on record as three of his favorite operatives. She looked down at her hands. With Victor's recent departure from the Collective, many of the elders have allowed certain... negative feelings to color their perceptions of anyone associated with him. A ripple of confusion ran through the room. I don't get it. Sasha said, frowning. Victor caught the rogue teep who killed Del and Trace. He got the Elder's blessing to retire. Why would they be angry at him? Miriam hesitated, debating how much to tell them. When Victor left us, she said at last, he did not leave alone. Unbeknownst to the rest of the Hive, he had fostered a relationship with one of the students at Westfall, and he apparently persuaded her to join him. She pressed her lips together, and felt her eyes narrow at the memory of the two letters they'd found in Abby's room. The girl in question was possibly the strongest telepath we've ever had at Westfall. Callie covered her mouth, and Miriam heard her suppress a snicker. She resisted the urge to snap at the girl for her rudeness. Mannerless street rat that she was, they still needed her. Sasha reached up to her neck and clasped the silver yew tree that hung there. Elder Bakdavar, she asked, how the hell is it that we never heard anything about this? A sexual relationship with a student is a huge breach of conduct on Kano Victor's part. Why hasn't anyone gone after him and dragged his ass in front of a tribunal? Miriam sighed. We can't prove the relationship was sexual before she left. And even if we could... I fear it will endanger the child's life if we pursue them too openly. We are taking steps to find the girl, but it has to remain quiet for now. The only reason I mention it is because you were three of Victor's favorites, and the ill will he has created with the elders is filtering down to you. The elders can't believe that we had anything to do with Victor taking that girl, Brian said. Of course not. But the fear is that his rebellious attitudes may have been transferred to you by your long association with him. I am afraid your defense of Josephine Matthews has been seen as a bad sign. Sasha scoffed. Don't tell me you agree with what they're doing to her. I appreciate their motives, Miriam said, but I take issue with their methods. In any case, we know that Josephine recently received a large sum of money from an unnamed source. This has allowed her to remain outside direct involvement in the Collective, which the Hive had hoped to avoid. No one knows who made the donation, but your cell was at the top of the list of potential suspects. Brian and his wives exchanged astonished glances. "'I'm sorry, Elder, but we don't know anything about this,' he said." We've been discussing ways we might be able to help Joe and her daughter, but... He shook his head. It's all right, Miriam said, raising a hand. You don't have to tell me anything. Whether you were involved with this particular incident or not, it doesn't change our situation. 
I can help you to complete your mission, but I will need to be subtle and use my backdoor connections in order to do so. She raised the printed summary Brian had given her. I believe I can get you everything on this list. Just keep a low profile and give me time to do it properly. Brian and Sasha both nodded wearily. Fiona shifted in her seat and asked, What would you like us to do in the interim, mistress? Miriam blinked, mildly surprised at the woman's deferential tone. Gather all the information on Viscount that you can. Set up the false identities you intend to use, and arrange for the tour of the Viscount office. She rose to her feet, and the others did likewise, with the exception of Callie. She looked at each of them in turn. This operation needs to be perfect. Successful completion of the mission objectives with no casualties. If we fail, the Hive will certainly break up your cell and strip away every privilege you've earned for yourselves in the last five years. And I myself will pay the price for my collusion. Callie raised her eyebrows. And you're still willing to stick your neck out even with all that? Miriam raised her chin and looked the girl straight in the eyes. I am, she said. We have been rudderless for too long. It is well past time for someone in the Hive leadership to begin leading. But doesn't that go against the whole idea of the Hive? Sasha asked. The elders are supposed to give counsel and the Hive mind decides. Miriam smiled humorlessly. Every ideal system breaks down eventually she said, and sometimes even a communal democracy needs to be protected from itself. And that's the end of chapter 24. Come back next time when Danny checks in with her flatmates again and then takes Jared for a special night out. Tim O'Brien said, A good piece of fiction, in my view, does not offer solutions. Good stories deal with our moral struggles, our uncertainties, our dreams, our blunders, our contradictions, our endless quest for understanding. Good stories do not resolve the mysteries of the human spirit, but rather describe and expand upon those mysteries. So, let's see what mysteries I've expanded upon this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of April 3rd through April 9th. I wrote 2,941 words this week, over the course of 4.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 619 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 355 days without breaking my chain. This week I very nearly finished my Natasha prequel story, Learning the Ropes. After establishing that Natasha had this meaningful sexual encounter with one of her comrades-in-arms, I had to show why the relationship didn't last. At the time of Honor Bound, Natasha hasn't had anything like a serious girlfriend for a long time, and she's not in touch with Private Russo anymore. I have to establish why that is. This is the toughest part of the story for me, because I can't give the characters a happy ending. The best I can manage is a sort of bittersweet ending, where they acknowledge their feelings but can't stay together. 
It does raise the possibility, though, that Russo might show up in a later story, creating complications and emotional drama for Honor and Natasha. The story is now about 12,400 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.